the theme for the afternoon talk is the cessation, that means the ending of suffering, not the ending of the self, of I. This kind of uh, body of uh, wisdom uh, teachings has a valuable and important uh, direction and emphasis uh, to it. And in a way it really does pay uh, great uh, respect to our remarkable capacity as uh, human beings to look at life, to face our existence, to make a contribution to the welfare of others, people, animals and the environment are there. And so it's a, a wisdom teachings which can change what needs to be changed, which can transform that which was not transformed, which can liberate that which was trapped, can realize and discover the unconstructed rather than living in a tightness and tight uh, construction. Its teachings as well are teachings which uh, acknowledge the fullness of our humanity and therefore and uh, equally it looks at of course the entire relationship to the physical experience of life the feeling emotional experience the world of thought and construct and cognition and of uh, consciousness and does not rest there but it also expands out to the whole relationship to the world that we live in so that when we make reference to mindfulness, it is always and without exception a consideration where of mindfulness which is both equally, no more, no less, inwardly and outwardly, here and there. This being, being human and that. There is no bias, nor prejudice, nor tendency in the body of wisdom teachings which leans more towards the self. There is no view in the teachings that you or I first have to work on ourselves, and then afterwards we can do something. Because we are not living in isolation. We are living in contact and in communication with others. You and I are dependent on the welfare of others. And in that respect, much of our actions, much of our considerations are such that we need to be as clear with, a, with a empathy towards others and towards other situations as much as towards ourselves. It is not a teaching which is me first and after that second, which means the, uh, means the other. I know there is often a tendency in this world of spirituality and mindfulness and um, um, meditation where it seems or it does come across all too often about some kind of self-salvation. 
there. So we can really, in our situations, really keep this dynamic and, and clarity that the mindfulness goes in both directions. And also has to, with the exploration of um, mindfulness, as mentioned a day or two ago with you, mindfulness is a function, uh, a beneficial, uh, obviously supportive one, which simply reveals. It only shows. It, it brings light upon inwardly or outwardly or both together and with the regularity of use of the word especially in situations and in places and with people like me with the regularity of use of the word very easily we can get the idea or imagine that one's life changes because of mindfulness or we can get the idea more and more mindfulness will make a real difference. It's a misunderstanding. Mindfulness cannot exist independently of the rest of life. Mindfulness is not a function which of itself can change anything. That's not possible. It can only reveal. And how easy, through the regularity of the use of the concept, we can be telling ourselves, oh, I need to be more mindful. And if I'm more mindful, then this will go away. If I'm more mindful, this will stop. If I'm more mindful, uh, this there. And when we put a lot of exaggerated emphasis into the mindfulness, then what will often come around afterwards, oh, I was doing my practice, I was doing the mindfulness, but nothing changed. It, it's a signal, if you hear that voice inside, that too much emphasis is placed on the body of teachings in which one aspect called mindfulness is exaggerated. Mindfulness it coexists. Mindfulness arises due to the conditions. It requires the heart and feelings and thoughts. And in quoting the, 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 the Buddha here, he says, one applies mindfulness, this is a strong statement, one applies mindfulness to the extent necessary. Let's take an example. And I haven't forgotten the theme of the talk. I'll, I'll, I'll weave it in probably in the last five minutes. So, let's take uh, an example. There is the self which is problematic. Problematic insofar as it is the sense of I, the notion of I, is under the influence. It's under the influence of habits and patterns, tendencies, under the influence of states of mind. It's under the influence of history, the background, the past. 
And that dynamic moving around inside the psyche of the human being generates uh, uh, and um, influences and gives shape to how I look at myself, so to speak, how I look at others, uh, so to speak. And when there is a problematic state for, for us, the past, without exception, in some way or other, has to be there influencing the present. Every time. When one is unhappy, depressed, angry, fearful, agitated, stressed out, and all the other dynamics that can go on with, the past is having an impact on the present. And very easily, the impact on the present, when our present cannot contain that impact, it will have to go to the future. So the future easily acts as a very sort of big space because we can't contain something in the present and it goes into the future and it says, oh, it's going to affect my next relationship. It's going to affect me next week and next month. How long will it take me to get over this? What will it, I'm, the mistakes I made in my last job, I'm, just a, I'm going to make in my next job. Whatever it might be. So the past carried into the present. The present is, isn't big enough, so to speak, because one's not centred nor grounded. And then it will spin over and easily into the future. So there is a distortion, an impact, from yesterday, so to speak, into today and into tomorrow. Here's the point. One is mindful of this. Does it make a big difference? One is mindful that what happened in the past is still affecting me in the present. One is quite clear about it. So one has enough mindfulness to the extent necessary to realise and know that this which is old is influencing this which is today and it might continue in tomorrow. One's got enough mindfulness. And very easily one thinks, oh, if I have more mindfulness, it's going to make a difference. Of course it won't. You've got enough mindfulness to the extent necessary. And then the question comes, this, there is a formative, that means influential difficulty of the old, landing in the present, uh, uh, there, one sees it quite, quite clearly, there, there's a certain kind of insight in the fact that one has seen it, but the mindfulness then, surely, since it's still there, and because one may have been saying to oneself and others, oh, I've been mindful of this stuff, this issue, for such a long time, it hasn't made any difference. Well, you walk into a dark room, you put the light on, do you think all the furniture is going to start moving around and make some space? Just because you put some light on in the room? 
goodness me. <laughs> so the mindfulness itself, as I say, reveals, it sheds some light on something, and then from the shedding of the light on it, must come, hopefully, the intel. hopefully, I don't know that word, must come, without the hope, <laughs> there, what is the step or steps which are necessary so that I can see the present and therefore the future without the weight, the burden and the history of the past? If I don't ask that question, if I don't take an interest in uh, that uh, uh, exploration, I will be stuck with my mindfulness. It won't lead anywhere. And therefore there is no liberation. And so the mindfulness reveals, and then from there may come some reflection. I may not be sure what that step might be. It might require some discussion with the wise and with the, and the, and the supportive. Of course it does. It certainly will somewhere require a genuine, authentic interest in making the change. And that requirement for, to make the change, if it's a strong problem, a strong issue, and quite often with a long history to it, but not always, then the strength, so to speak, of the response to it will have to be stronger. It, it will require from us that um, commitment, spoken of so much here, and dedication uh, and here, is to really see what are the ways to look at a situation without the self, in this case, without the problematic self. Uh, there. And if we really keep with it, keep exploring it, something fresh will have to emerge out of it. And one has a real sense that something emerging fresh out of it is completely different from the pattern, from the old. And that something fresh coming uh, uh, out of it is, if you want to use Buddha Dharma uh, language, it is the ending of the karma of it. And these teachings are about ending of the karma. And the karma in reference here is old things, fear, worry, anxiety, projections, or whatever that may, they may be about there. Yeah. When it has some influence, there is a movement in the being, and karma means activity, action, which has got the colouring and distortion in it. It is then we find landing in the present, referred to as karma vipaka, the fruit of the karma. So there's a movement going on, there is something which is unresolved happening. It moves in the being. It's gathering a momentum. 
and it lands in the present and it's called the, the fruit of the karma. It's the end result of that. And Dharma teachings are the teachings which is to put an end to the karma. That means to unhealthy, unskillful, non-beneficial history which keeps influencing one's life. And in fact many of our fine people and many of you in engaged in service to others, if you put it in a Dharma language there, it is to end and to bring to a closure the suffering of the other. And that may be around histories and stories and backgrounds there, but to find the skillful ways so a person doesn't feel under the burden in the emotional and uh, psychological uh, sense. <coughs> in the teachings, I might get through two glasses of water here, we'll see. Of this self and uh, so-called no-self or not-self, in the body of the Buddha Dharma, the issue around self, no-self, not-self, probably, as well as a few other concepts, are really a challenge to really get a real sense of. It, it, it puzzles people if the language of no-self, not-self, you know, it, it's like it goes against all the reasoning and the rationalizations and, and the thought and the way we uh, uh, conceive. And the other, which we'll touch upon today, is another uh, word is emptiness. It's a, 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 another, and there are a few others as well, but enough for one day. And people can be on retreats, these uh, Buddhist-flavored um, retreats, listen to the teachings, and sometimes, kind of, go home and uh, leave with the idea. Oh, teachings are saying there is no self. Teachings are, uh, are, are about the ending of the self, the extinction of the self, the extermination of the self, the uh, going beyond, and uh, all these lovely uh, uh, other words. Oh no, they're not. No, not in, it's not, not in the body of the, of the, uh, the teachings. Teaching is not about the extinct, extinction or the extinguishing. Do you understand these English words? Yeah. It's not about kind of nuking the self, if you want a, a metaphor here. You know, blowing it away or, or never having it come back again. It's about the cessation, which is the extinction, and the ending of suffering. It's about that. Yeah. And it isn't easy to look at what is the formation, key word here, 
the uh, presentation of the eye in all of this uh, dynamic. And it is one of the um, important areas of mindfulness and it is pretty remarkable as, uh, as uh, human beings as for the moment that there is this potential not only to be mindful of I mindful of me mindful of the self same word here um, not only that, but actually to change, as it were, the state that it is in. It's not only, I think, anyway, remarkable that one can be a conscious human being and really see and notice what is going on. Quite remarkable that there is a capacity to actually engage in change and transformation, that one can look at something and change it. It's an extraordinary thing, the potential. Tragically, few people seem to know about it. <laughs> That's the tragedy. <laughs> the vast majority of people do not have, said before, any tools any recognition or appreciation of the capacity for transformation. It's not in the culture, it is not in the, in the society, it is not offered. Much of it, in fact, has come from, I uh, may say, modesty here, um, and with much else, because we realised the contracted state of our society, how incredibly small the mind is, with all of its arrogance, but small. And we had to get out of this, some of us. And we said, maybe there are other cultures and other societies which look and explore life for insight and wisdom, and perhaps in all of their stories and nightmares, there still may be some really valuable teachings which really can shed light on our existence. And we went, some of us, to the East. We went to the Buddhist tradition. We went to the Advaita tradition. We went to yoga. We went to uh, life, lifestyle. We looked at other forms of culture. We looked at what community uh, is all about, the importance of simplicity, of really living uh, close to the earth. We engaged in meditation, deep meditation. We engaged in inquiry. We lived a life of deep exploration and we were totally supported. We never paid a penny. We were monks and nuns. We were completely supported in this single endeavour to find out what matters, what is true, what is suffering, what is the resolution of it. We, didn't, we still don't provide a culture which really has that kind of recognition of men and women and children coming together. In the monastery we had children, eight years of age, sitting on the throne, that's on the high chair, giving talks, eight years of age. 
talks to hardcore seasoned monks and the middle monks, the hardcore, sat in the front row on the cushions. Not on the cushions, on the mat. You've got a mat if you've been around for years and if you weren't, you've got the floor. And, and, the, and the nuns and the lay people, 100, 200 people in the hall sometimes and the kids come and give a talk on the Dharma and at the very end there would be a spontaneous sadhu, sadhu. It means well said, well said, well said. And it come because of the culture and climate of sharing and looking and exploring as, 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 as we are, are doing here, uh, here, here today. And out of that we find ways with all the valuable and precious things that are going on in the Western society. There's a huge amount which I love and appreciate about it. But I don't think it's got the depth. I still think it's still too much reliant. I think we have to check in with our experience uh, uh, a lot more and to find ways to see the manifestation of the self and not keep feeding it. Buddha was asked once, how would this world end? He said one word, greed. Greed will destroy this world. He said 2,600 years ago, and some of us say, he was right. That's a huge problem. Because their, their inner life and their relationship, there's a sense somewhere, there's something missing in one's life. All too human. Something absent. Something not fulfilled. Something not nourished. And we're told we're not good enough. We're told we are, have to work harder. And this keeps feeding this self. It builds it up. And then we imagine, because we've been told, we've been brainwashed, we've been conditioned, you only find fulfilment by getting what you want. Firstly, in the material world, one. And secondly, approval and attention from others. To be a success. And this is a severe problem which is not truly recognised. Just the, how destructive it is. And this is called ego. It is called in the Eastern tradition eye-making activity in which somehow the self has got so much in the centre that the world is kind of revolving and moving around myself. It's all about me. Whoa. Whoa. The culture of so-called individualism. What individualism is there when one in four or five people are depressed? Obese, anxious, worry, fearful, feeling something is missing. Where is the individualism? So when we look, we see 
what is the movement of the I, what is the movement of the self, its manifestation uh, there, and rather have a reactive view, I've got to get rid of myself, I've got to transcend myself, nuke myself, dissolve myself, uh, there. What are the influences upon this phenomena called I? That's all. What are the influences? And in the mindfulness of, the meditation on, or the uh, uh, awareness on, it's going to take some work and sharing and, and exploration. And as some of you have mentioned, both here and of course I know with your daily lives as well, and this is a great challenge for, for, for liberation, we can have a sense, so really I think it's a, a, a a kind of precious sense that the world this is external for a moment that we have made in which what's given immense value is status and possession status for the I and ownership this this, this is what pumped into us, into our kids. When they did a poll in England and they asked, I think, 5,000 teenagers what they wanted, 93% said to be rich. Tragic. Tragic. That their brains and their good hearts and souls have been consumed in, in this uh, horror. So when we look, sometimes we look at all, all of that. We might notice it in ourselves as well. And we're not pulled into the world of status and position or name and fame or whatever. And the material world with all that goes with it, also not a huge interest for us. It isn't easy to stay true to that, because others, from family to friends to colleagues and others, will get the impression and will think we are lost. We don't know what we're doing with our lives. Because we're not driven towards having and towards a better position and to owning. We're just not going in that direction. And when we're not going in that direction, we're not part of the crowd. And, we, and we're told we're wasting our life or you don't really know what you want or you don't know what you're doing with your life. And then that comes back and our self then feels maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm so confused I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I should imitate their miserable lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a confusion in the being uh, uh, there. But somehow 
in this kind of spiritual existential uncertainty uh, there it isn't easy to stay steady with it and therefore the material world things, status, position ownership has a small part to play in consciousness there's a role to play we have we have the, the necessities of the need in the material world we need to eat and we need to drink and we, and we need clothing we need medication we need a place to live and we need items and, um, and so on and so forth it's not that yeah. but it's so exaggerated it's so addictive and obsessive there it's then the blind spot to what is to deep questioning and I think it's really worth our while as human beings with this extraordinarily short life that we have to keep reminding ourselves let this whole world out there be quieter in our being in order to have access to something else which is, brings happiness and love and, and freedom and engagement uh, there because the material world hasn't got us and, and, and it's one of those extraordinary things when the self doesn't keep landing in such a way we may have to go through a lot of questioning who am I, what am I doing with my life where am I going we may have to go through a lot of confusion but it's worth it it's worth it it's worth hanging uh, in with it it's worth exploring it's worth trying to live through these inner movements of uncertainty about oneself and one's life and what's doing what matters and where one is going at least there's some chance for some discovery there is an opportunity for it I was in Australia I've got lots of these uh, stories <coughs> and the guy's father was on the board of directors of a major um, oil company which is not quite my favourite company but anyway uh, uh, there and the son uh, the father wanted to m make his son easily happens a kind of if I may say clone of himself so the father said to the son went to the best school best university in Australia and uh, became a lawyer and he was in his late 20s and this voice inside the son was going around and the father was saying look if you keep with this with my influence and your knowledge and skills by the time you are in your mid-40s, you can be a board of director and earning a fortune. 
And he said, you've got the potential to be the CEO, Chief Executive Officer, or I I thought it was Chief Ego Officer, but anyway. (laughs) And by that time, you could could reach this one. And the son felt very uneasy about all this. And that unease, bless him, he kept listening to there. And one day, he resigned, and his father was very upset, very angry with him. And what was really supportive was that his mother understood him. Sometimes one needs one's mum. And his mother understood him and wouldn't say a word against his wish to get out of the, in this case, the business world. And, and of course, as people do, took himself off to India, as they do, some of you have done, and spent time there and he came back and then he was on the retreat with myself in the forest uh, there. And he said, that shift and change in that expression of it He said, for the first time after that, since then, it hasn't been easy, he's still struggling, he hasn't got the answers, but he said, I am happy though. In a way which I never was before. I was just pleasing my father, doing what he told me to do, thinking he knew better than I. And sometimes, in the freedom of expression, Sonia talked about this, the letting go that takes place, the fading away of things that that take place, provides this opportunity for something fresh and new. And it's worth being misunderstood by important people in our life if we are prepared to really listen to what's speaking to us. It's, It's worth it. And some of us have upset a few people over the years, I have to say. (laughs) But it's a kind of revolutionary, transformative thing, and not easy to live with. So though the questions and the questioning goes on, and though we may not have all the answers, nevertheless, in this short journey through this yatra, this pilgrimage of existence, at least we're exploring. I mean, you don't have to go to India to that, for that. <laughs> Local park is just as good. <laughs> Retreat centres are just as good. Contact with good communication with friends. The, whole, the sky above and earth below is much the same everywhere. <clears throat> and what that means in, in that respect uh, being, it's not about kind of trying to get rid of myself it is two things here taking the suffering that can go with it, dissolving it is one and sometimes that leaves a kind of soft sense of the I you know when we're angry the I is very strong, when we're afraid the I is strong a soft sense of it and also, equally, 
there are experiences which we have in which there is no I at work. It simply is not in consciousness. It's not there. And those experiences, of course, can happen in med meditation. But there can be that uh, expansiveness, could be in the nature, uh, spontaneously, in which me, the self, and one's, all of one's personal, so-called, history has no relevance. None whatsoever. It doesn't matter who I was born to. It doesn't matter where I was born. It doesn't matter all my past experiences. It doesn't matter what school I went to. It doesn't matter my knowledge. It doesn't matter my role, my identity. All that which I think I am and believe I am, there are experiences where we know that none of that has any relevance at times. None of it. It's just not relevant. And this absence there, and it could just be the walk in the forest. Nothing special. Who cares if you're male or female, young or old, clever or not clever, went to university or not went to university, and all the other things that make us up. There are times when it's got no relevance. Completely unimportant. Unimportant to you, let alone anybody else. And there are plenty of moments when the self, that construct with all of its history, has no significance in relationship to wisdom. And, and there may just be the light eye arising. It's so nice. I am not involved in my story. I am not involved in my history. I am not involved in what I will do in the future. And so sometimes the I, likely, as I just mentioned, may arise there and there is an appreciation or a gratitude. Well, I'm not in this stuff of yesterday, today or tomorrow. And that is just a mild thought as an I arising, which is recognizing this experience without all this I, me, and my in it. So the I just comes up and recognizes that. It just acknowledges it. It's the mindfulness of it with little I in it. Do you understand? Little I in it. It's not, it's not a problem. It's not, oh, this faint little I, it's risen in my mindfulness. God, I'm so stuck in myself. It's one more thing I've got to nuke. Or whatever. No, there is the place for the arising of I. And we can know it's just arising with the mindfulness. Or it, one might say, if you see uh, the teachers or the friend or inwardly, there was an experience Sometimes there are very precious and deep experiences. And as some of you have reported, I had an experience 
no, reported. There was an experience and I didn't feel I was in it. That the eye kind of dropped out of the experience so that there was only there a kind of, should we call it, pure awareness or a pure light or an expansiveness. The world and this expansiveness were intimate, they were kind of fused together and this experience just there but I and me and my it just wasn't in that anywhere and these are, are, are precious reminders to us yes, yes there can be such experiences without I, me and my in them and when that experience may fade, and it will fade, afterwards, <coughs> one naturally, organically, humanly, will say, possibly, to another, I had this experience. So there's no I, and Alton says, oh, I had this experience. And I still say it's completely appropriate in a simple way to use the language of I because it's a kind of shorthand for there was an expansive experience, there was no ego going on in it, there was this extraordinary receptivity, profound presence, uh, a discovery which arose, which I never even thought of before, never even imagined, it just came out of the blue, I, I had nothing to do with it. There And after that, to repeat, we can look back and say, oh, which is fine, I had it. But if it goes, I had this, now I am enlightened and I'm going to tell you what enlightenment is and how you can learn I because I, I, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have it, it was me, me, me. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. And there are a few of them around, they're called spiritual teachers. And <laughs> so one, we had a discussion at lunch day about one, we won't go into names. And <laughs> and so, the use, the application of I is appropriate in countless number situations and the teachings are not about getting rid of I. It's not about making them permanent, the I permanent. It's not saying it is always present. And quite often, as mentioned, the eye arises quite naturally in relationship to the past, in relationship to the present and to the future. But it does not have to have any suffering in it. And as I mentioned, to repeat a little bit, the lovely experiences as well, which says the absence of there. <coughs> in the... Finally, kind of the body of the teachings uh, uh, there, which are regularly pointed to 
uncontracted. Do you understand uncontracted? To be contracted is to be tight around something. There. Not always, but quite uh, regularly, there can be a certain contraction which is experienced physically. It can be a combination of factors. So that could be, of course, trauma and anguish and pain and tightness and, and it could be felt in any part of the body. It could be through the compositions as well of the, the cells, the uh, genetic makeup, the DNA, the environment, past and present. All of this can bring about some contraction. Illness and sicknesses and pain, quite often, obviously, have some contraction uh, with it. And it isn't easy to attend to, and it isn't easy to live with and, and uh, uh, deal, deal with. It is noticing where and what that might be, where it is, just for the physical. Is it in the chest? Is it the headache? Is it the knee pains? Is it in the back or whatever? Yeah. And we can, we have the capacity to explore and work with that in a whole variety of uh, ways. Movement and stillness and diet and, and posture and play and exercise and many, many, many ways. Meditation to mindfulness, all to work with all all of these contractions. What we w wish to really take care with, it may not be possible, as human beings, with the physical world, to be free, obviously, from the variety of conditions which affect the body. Fact. One cannot expect, anticipate, in this organic field of uh, physical life, for a human being to pass through life without experiencing pain and sickness and ageing issues and so, so forth. Pain and sickness and ageing issues do not have the power to contract the consciousness around it. It might well require, where there is pain from the circumstances, where there is sickness uh, or ageing or whatever, it might require from us a lot of extra interest and attention, for sure. It might require from us the good counsel and the good skills of our people in the medical professions and uh, psychology professions and the spiritual world, uh, uh, etc. But of its, it's the important thing, of itself, what that physical occurrence is 
does not have the power to contract, to be contracted around it, so it is creating worry, fear and anxiety. And the worry, fear and anxiety is the indication in the relationship to the physical that one has contracted around it. And like the Buddha says, one arrow in the body is difficult enough. Two arrows doubles it. And so the wise, the awakened ones, the liberated ones, the ones who live an uncontracted life, not tight, uncontracted life, still experience cancer, still experience pain in the body, still experience significant changes in the ageing process, still can experience some loss or deterioration in the quality of the mind. There's no absolute safeguard from that there. But in an uncontracted recognition of that, it doesn't have the power to generate fear, worry and anxiety. Therefore, there is no second arrow. And it's worth the exploring of this and knowing the self, that's a difficult self, to put it in a language of this afternoon with you, is to know which areas of life am I contracted around with her up and be mindful of that the first precious step towards change and then see from that what are the steps which will be valuable and necessary and if I'm not sure see if you can find the others and others who are willing and able to share with you and perhaps provide us with some insights and some inspiration. You should not think that all the answers are within ourselves. Experiences of self, ego, self mentioned. Experiences of the absence of self and absence of ego self. Experiences of, of the lightness in a kind of quiet descriptive mode I see this, I remember this whatever uh, uh, there recognising that liberation is to be free from contraction despite the challenges of the physical life and if we keep exploring uh, this the questions will still be vital they'll still be arising uh, for us. And we may at times feel a bit lost. But what's the alternative? <laughs> what's the alternative? Okay, let's have our quiet minute together. Thank you for listening.
may all beings explore inwardly and outwardly. May all beings engage in the deep questions of life. May all beings live with love and liberation.